Last week, we talked about the early church worship, and we talked about the preaching in the early church. And this week, we're going to move on to the Middle Ages. And um, when we talk about the Middle Ages, there's no way to do it without painting in a broad brush in some way. Because we're basically talking about a period of about a thousand years. Um, There is no way that you can comprehensively say satisfyingly what worship was like during this time period. And so what we're going to do this morning is focus on two very broad areas. And I don't know how far we'll actually get, to be honest. But I want to talk about worship in the Eastern Church. And I want to talk about worship in the Western Church. Um, We could talk about a lot of other things. We could talk about the missionary work that was taking place uh, to the barbarians, the Romans' words, to the barbarians in Gaul. We could talk about the missions to Spain. We could talk about St. Patrick's missionary work in Ireland um, among the Picts. Um, We could talk about missionary work in Germany. Um, We could talk about the different monastic orders, the Benedictines, the Cistercians, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and more. But that, as far as I'm concerned, is more in the history side of things. And I want us to focus more on the worship side of things. So um, I'm going to be restrained, in other words. Um, And this is still probably the longest of all the lessons. So it'll probably take us three weeks maybe to get through it. Um, I also want to remind you of a few things. I'm not a scholar of the Middle Ages. Uh, Instead, I am an amateur who loves reading on these topics. And so I'm sharing you things that I've gained and learned. But if you ask me a follow-up question to a lot of this, I may not have answers for you. But I probably have a book that has the answer for you. So... Um, You get ready to hear I don't know if you ask me follow-up questions. Um, um, Okay, some historical background. Just this week, I finished reading a book by Adrian Goldsworthy called How Rome Fell, an extremely interesting book that was exactly what I wanted. Um, It gave me this picture of what happens with Rome? How does it fall? And the answer is, it's not like it just fell over. It's not like it just toppled. It's not like it ceased to be. Over the course of several hundred years, Rome is just weaker. There is just a weak central government. Um, when the barbarians press in upon the um, when the barbarians press in upon the frontiers, they will take land, and after a while, Rome doesn't have the strength to take it back again. Um, After a while, Rome is kind of powerless. Sometimes they'll send messages out to their armies and give them directions on things that they ought to do. And there's no army there when the messenger arrives. (laughs) Where did the the army go? They, they, They either went and joined the barbarians or they abandoned ship and ran. Um, But there's nobody there anymore to send commands to. Um, So by the 5th and 6th century... The, the emperor of Rome is more like a regional leader in Italy than he is a part of a superpower anymore. Um, and so the Western Empire is largely ungoverned because there just is not a major, ar- major army any longer. Um, so bit by bit, the machine of Rome starts to wind down. Infrastructure starts to crumble. Why? Because it takes specialized knowledge to maintain things like aqueducts, um, roads. After a while, there just aren't people around who know the things that you need in order to keep everything going and to keep the wheels turning. 
Um, there's no one thing that leads to the fall of Rome. Instead, you have the barbarians pressing in. Um, you have civil war all the time. Uh, you had one year where there were four, em- four emperors in Rome. Uh, they, and each of them just dies. Um, the, the main cause of death for a Roman emperor was murder, being betrayed by somebody. Um, also, think about this carefully. When you think of barbarians, you know, you think of, I don't know what you think of exactly when you think of barbarians. Brothers, could you? <laughs> um, I'll just, I'll let someone else talk to him. Um, so when you think of barbarians, think of Christians. Largely think of Christians when you think of barbarians. Because what you're talking about with barbarians is actually people who've been evangelized. Especially by the 5th and 6th century, they've been evangelized. So you're talking about one type of Christian over against another type of Christian. Um, what you're really talking about with barbarians is probably Arians. Uh, most of the barbarians, it seems broadly speaking, were Arian in their theology they had um, a deficient view of Jesus. They believed Jesus was created. And so because they thought Jesus was created, they, they were not welcome in Roman churches. Um, because by the 5th and 6th century, eventually the, the creeds have been written. The Nicene Creed has been written. The Athanasian Creed has been written. Um, and so you have a solidifying within Christendom of what the views are of who Jesus is. And the barbarians certainly don't fall within that. Now, oftentimes what happens is the barbarians end up coming in. They end up taking over the locality. There's a church there. Guess what they don't do? They don't destroy the church. They don't tear down the building. They don't burn it to the ground. They leave it. And so what happens is the barbarians come in and gradually you see oftentimes a Christian influence, a Trinitarian Christian influence that spreads into the, con- into the people. And eventually the area tends to have a, an orthodox theology, but it takes a long time. Um, you have um, men like Alaric. Alaric. Alaric is one of the leaders of the Goths. He, you know, he goes into cities and he orders his men not to touch the churches. When they raid Rome, he says, don't touch the churches. Leave the churches standing. And actually, that's something that Augustine talks about in his City of God. When he's in the, in the book City of God, Augustine is reflecting on the fall of Rome. And he says, we need to remember that, that the, the barbarians left our churches standing. Uh, we need to remember that it's actually the Romans who in the past have been, been themselves barbarians and who themselves worship demons and who themselves uh, forced us to worship the gods. And so let's not make any mistakes here about where our loyalty lies. Our loyalty lies with the kingdom of heaven, not with some earthly realm such as Rome, um, which is, you know, he's, he's on the verge of the empire falling as we think of falling. And that's where he's giving those reflections. So, why do we call it the middle, the Dark Ages? Or why do some people call it the Dark Ages? The term the Dark Ages was not written during the Dark Ages. <laughs> people during the Dark Ages did not have any cognizance that they were living through Dark Ages. Instead, there's a fellow named Petrarch in 1330. And he expressed his own yearning to return to the glory of Rome. He wished that we could get back to Rome again. And so he uses that phrase because he says, ever since we lost Rome, we lost the light. And he thought, if only we could have Rome back, we'd have the light back. Um, but mainly the phrase has been used in our modern day by people who, after the Enlightenment, have said, look, uh, we want to get back to something else. The darkness came in with, with the Middle Ages. Why? 
because it was a time of Christian dominance. It was a time where, where the, the government fell. It was a time where centralized government failed. And so instead, what rises up in its place? The church. The church ends up becoming the center of society. Bishops become really important. Church leaders become really important. Sometimes the, the priest or the bishop of an area ends up almost becoming like a political leader in some of these places because he's the person that everybody in uh, an area will listen to. And so whether they wanted to be political leaders or not, they end up becoming a type of political leader. Um, but the truth is, during this time, you have incredible advances in poetry, in mathematics, in, and in theology. And so, no, it was not an era that resembled the glory of Rome. Uh, certainly not Rome during its height. For example, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, Rome is probably at the height of its power. <coughs> certainly at the height of its stability. After Marcus Aurelius is Commodus. Did any of you see the movie Gladiator? Um, you've got Commodus. Now, not very close to the way things happened at all. Commodus was strangled in the bath by a wrestler. Uh, not killed in the middle of an arena. So um, <laughs> you just find out stuff as you're listening to these stories and you're like, man. So let's talk about what worship looks like in the Eastern and the Western church. And I have to distinguish because the Eastern church is pretty distinctive. <laughs> Uh, from the Western Church. The Eastern Church tends to be in Greek. Western Church tends to be Latin. The Eastern Church tends to, um, tends to prize a little more its connection to history than the Western Church. And so let's just talk about the East for the moment. Let's talk about the East. If you went to a worship service in an Eastern Church uh, during the Middle Ages, let's say after 600 AD, what would you find? First of all, I'll say this. Um, if you ask an Eastern Orthodox person today how they worship, they will tell you that they still worship the same way that they worshiped a thousand years ago. Uh, that is probably not far off. Uh, there have been some changes. And in fact, when I was doing some online research and just seeing whether Eastern Orthodox churches still do some of the things that I was reading about, uh, for the most part, there are churches still holding on, and there are some churches that have slipped their way into the 21st century, and they're not quite as, um, and they're not quite uh, where they were a thousand years ago. But still, this is generally pretty true. So I'm going to give you some things, some things about uh, Western or Eastern worship. First thing you should know about Eastern worship, um, my understanding is this is still true. They do not have pews. Uh, they do not have pews. Instead, you stand around the room. Um, now, I don't know if they're like us where like, you know, yeah, maybe I don't have a seat, but I've got a spot, you know. <laughs> yes, they still do that. Yeah. If you go to an Eastern Orthodox. Now, there may be some Eastern Orthodox church that has seats somewhere, but but they, they still don't have pews for the most part. Um, they don't have pews. They don't have anywhere to sit. Instead, you stand. Um, they do not have a pulpit. Actually, I was looking into this. Apparently, some churches have what they call a pulpit. So uh, my understanding, at least historically, was they didn't have a pulpit. Instead, they had a lectern, but I'll get to that. Um, they don't have an organ, and they don't use instruments. That is still true today. They don't have an organ or instruments. Um, they have images of Jesus, biblical characters, and saints all over the walls. They call them icons. We will talk about icons in this lesson. We'll talk about images in this lesson, although probably not today. Uh, my sermons keep running long, so Sunday school has to suffer. That's kind of how it goes. Um, 
The building is intended to be modeled after the temple in Israel. Um, largely, that's the way that it's modeled. So um, I'm going to give you a really rough idea of an Eastern Orthodox um, sanctuary, I guess you might call it. Um, this is the eastern end. This is the western end. So, you know, turn it on its side. I'm just trying to make it confusing. In the room, there is a divider, uh, a screen. So, um, what you have is this screen that, that divides this part of the room from this part of the room. Um, this part of the room, it's like, um, I guess you'd call it the nave. This is the nave. This is where. Everybody can be. This is like the where everybody mills about. There's stuff on the walls. Just imagine Adam's worst nightmare all over the walls. Um, pictures and pictures and pictures, images all over the place. And then the screen. Now the screen, until the time of the iconoclast controversy, you never knew what you were going to get. Some churches you would go into and there wouldn't be any images. You remember me reading about... Uh, about the, the man who went into the church in Jerusalem and he found a curtain and it had a picture of Jesus sewn into it and he tore the thing down and he felt guilty. Um, you didn't know for sure if you went into a church whether you were going to see images of Jesus and the saints or whether it was going to end up being a plain room. Uh, but after the time of the iconoclast controversy, which we will talk about, um, they're everywhere. They're all over the place. It becomes settled basically after the second council of Nicaea. Um, so the room's divided in half, or maybe not perfectly in half, but largely in half. And the um, eastern half of the room is screened off from the western half, and it's a step higher. So if you go from here to here, you're taking a step up. You're going up into this room here. And inside of this room, there is a table with a Bible, or at least a copy of the Gospels, uh, a crucifix, and two candles. Um, if they could do it, I don't know if all of the Orthodox churches think they're doing this, but they, they try to put it over, um, they try to put it over like, um, relics of the saints, some kind of Orthodox saint, you know, a piece of a bone or, or something. And they try to put the table over, over that. And so when you participate in communion in an Orthodox church, you go through the screen and there are three entrances representing the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit showing that you get to go in and receive through the Trinity. So it's Trinitarian structure in how you get to the second half of the room. Yeah, John. Does crucifix mean the cross with him on it, or is it a cross? Uh, my understanding is it's he's on it. He's on it. Yeah. Um, although, you know, it's funny, I'm talking about all this. I've never been to an Eastern Orthodox service. Who's, who's been to an Eastern Orthodox service? I have All right. Everybody, don't be afraid to tell me that I'm wrong. Don't be afraid. I can take it. I can take it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I can take it, but do it anyway. Just <laughs> so, um, but see, there are no seats in here. So what do you have in the room? Around the, the room, you have, it's a very, my understanding is it's kind of a free-spirited service. Even though the, the priest is going to bring out like a lectern right to this spot here, right? He's going to bring a lectern out, and he's going to preach a sermon from the steps. Um, and he's going to basically, you know, it's a, it's a sermon. It's a message. And what do you do? What do you do when you're standing around the room? Well, you can walk around while he's preaching and, you know, walk up to a picture of St. Peter and pray to him. Or 
you can go over and find Mary and pray, pray to her over here. Or um, you can, you know, whatever you want. It's kind of um, open possibilities. Um, not as structured as our services would be, for example. Um, the, the priest comes in, um, senses the icons. In other words, he's got a sensor with some, with some uh, I need someone to tell me what goes in a sensor. <laughs> you can tell, I'm just talking about, all, does someone to say essential oils? <laughs> spreading essential oils around the room. Uh, sensing the, uh, the icons, um, the idea behind this is that incense is being offered for his presence and his work. We, we need these things. And so um, the temple is a big inspiration, though, for uh, the architecture. Because obviously you go into the Holy of Holies and not everybody enters the Holy of Holies. Only those who are worthy on some level. So um, some parts of the service are sung by the people, some by a choir, some by um, a, a reader. Um, singing is antiphonal, so it's call and response. So, so one person might sing one thing, and then you might have the group respond with something else. Um, but the singer starts with an idea, and the congregation finishes it. That's what antiphonal singing is. Um, by the way, there is some... I don't know why I'm including hymnody here, because I don't think these all just count as Eastern, as Eastern hymns. But I do want to talk about music from this time period, and for some reason I did group it under this. Um, Actually, I'm going to come back to talk about hymnody later. Somebody remind me not to. Somebody remind me to go back in my notes, and so we can talk about hymnody. If you go through the screen, so for, so here's what happens: the priest sings, or the priest leads the music, and you, they have the sermon, and then he goes behind the screen and he invites those who are members of Christ to come in behind the screen and to come and to receive the Lord's Supper. Um, they use, you know, you've heard of a common cup. How many of you have heard of the common spoon? A common spoon. This was a huge, this was a huge debate. And um, I didn't know this until I Googled it. Huge debate in American Eastern Orthodox churches was to whether still have the common spoon during COVID. So, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to get the plastic across the top and, you know, all this stuff. And they're like, should we still have the same spoon that we receive the Lord's Supper from? So here's, here's the reason that the, the reason the spoon exists is because there was an increased desire not to drop the, the host on the ground. Now, when you think of the Eastern Orthodox view of the Lord's Supper, think of the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, but with less explanation. Like, there's just a reticence to explain how Jesus is present in the supper from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. And so if you, if you, if you say that the Eastern Orthodox don't believe in transubstantiation, they're going to they're gonna really pump the brakes and, and, and say, well, not so fast. We just don't like Thomas Aquinas. Um, but they will basically describe what Roman Catholics also believe about uh, the Lord's Supper becoming the body and becoming the blood, but they won't use Aristotle to do it. Um, they will appeal more to mystery than a Roman Catholic is going to. And a Roman Catholic, what do they do? They get it all scientifically, philosophically explained down to the, the micro level so that there's no question how this happens. Um, and the Eastern Orthodox much more satisfied with just saying, this is Jesus' body and blood, 
and you should treat it like his body and blood. So what does that mean? It means you don't drop his body on the ground. It means you don't spill his blood on the ground. How do you prevent that? You use a spoon. And so what you do is you take the wine and you mix it with water. They mix the wine and the water. Does anyone know the reason why? What the water represents? The blood and the water. Well, you got the blood right. The water is us. The water is human nature that mixes with Jesus. And so we are united to Christ and then we drink. And so they mix water with the wine. And then my understanding is it's hot water. But I don't know if it, I don't know if it has to be hot. I just know that they mix water and wine. And then they also have a piece of bread that they put on the spoon in the wine. And so that's intinction. They intinct it. And then you tip your head back and they use the spoon to pour it in your mouth all at once. And that's how you're supposed to receive the Lord's Supper in an Eastern Orthodox church. Um, But as I say, they generally hold to transubstantiation. They tend to defend transubstantiation. And that was the way they interacted with the reformers. They ended up falling on the the Roman Catholic side of that whole debate uh, during the Reformation period. Um, I don't know if I need to give you very much assessment, but you can see how... You could see how that seems to be a very dramatic departure from the simplicity of the supper as it's observed in the New Testament, right? You're eating bread and wine. You're eating and drinking bread and wine. But now you've got this whole process. And each, each step of the process is meaningful, right? They can explain why each step of the process is meaningful. Um, but just because something's meaningful doesn't mean that that's what God is telling you to do. And that's the way God is telling you to do it. So if someone wanted to start doing a common spoon here at Evergreen, I would, I would resist really strongly. I'd, just, I'd be like, where do we go in the text? You know, where do we go for this? So that is a very, that's a very brief look at what a service in an Eastern Orthodox church would look like during the Middle Ages. Let's talk about the Western church. Um, The Western church struggles after the decline of the Roman Empire. Um, You see a decline in clergy education. This is one of the big things. In fact, the more that I read on the subject, the more I really believe that a lot of the liturgical um, structure, the liturgical structure, the highly structured services, the lectionaries that are given the more that I, I learn about the uneducated clergy in the Middle Ages, the more I believe a lot of that is because they have uneducated clergy. The church is afraid that people aren't getting the word of God, and so they start giving them set prayers. They start giving them set readings because they're afraid that people aren't going to hear what they need to. You know, you've got bishops who are very capable. Um, you may have other church leaders who are really capable, but think about it. You need priests all over the countryside. You need them everywhere. And you don't have certainly classical education. You don't have by seven, eight hundred. It's very elite places where you could actually go to receive the kind of education that you need to be able to read Greek and Hebrew and Latin, if any of those things. Um, And so that is one really big factor in thinking about the Middle Ages and worship. Um, There's a decline in preaching. Again, I mentioned this. There's a lack of the knowledge of the languages. We're going to talk about this more when we talk about one of my favorite medieval preachers, Bernard of Clairvaux, who who didn't know the original languages. He only knew Latin. Um, You have clergy carrying out the liturgical and sacramental functions. 
Here's what happens, and this is a quote from Nick Needham. He says, Western Catholics became accustomed to a form of worship in which many things were done, but hardly anything was explained. So, you know, imagine sitting here, and in a lot of places, you're not going to, it's, the service is going to be in Latin, and you're not going to know the language, and you're not going to know what's going on. Instead, you're going to see the motions of all of these things done, and whatever speaks to you is going to be, it's going to be the routine of what's done. Um, you're going to know that at a certain point that there's a crucifix up there, that there's a man who died for you. Uh, you're going to know that there, is, um, that there is bread and wine given to you. And you may even understand this is his body and blood or you're being, that's being explained to you that it's his body and blood. But you may not understand, for example, the gospel. You may only understand the outline and the sketches of what is visibly presented to you. And yes, through the images that you also see in the church. So you may see paintings on the walls depicting things like the fall of man or seeing Adam and Eve sent out of the garden or um, seeing uh, the creation of, of man or something like that. Like you'll see pictures that start to get some of these things across, but those almost become a necessity because the service may not even be in a language you know. Not everybody speaks Latin, but it becomes the language of the church. It becomes the thing that remains from Rome that ends up still being the case across the educated class and across the priestly class. Um, that's how the work of the church is still done. It's still done in that language. So here, let's, let's talk about what a service in a Western church looks like <clears throat> during this time period. Um, first, there is a greeting by the priest. There is a chant that takes place, usually Kyrie eleison. Uh, God have mercy, Christ have mercy. Um, there is the singing of a hymn. There is very rich hymnody taking place during this time period. We'll get to that. Um, there's a collect that takes place. Who knows what a collect is? Uh, it's, a, it's a set prayer. So the word collect, does that make more of a sense? Have you ever heard the word collect? I've heard it pronounced as a collect. A collect is a short prayer. Really a short, succinct, simple prayer um, that is prayed by the priest and maybe even is, is prayed by the people, uh, but certainly by the priest. Then there is an Old Testament reading, and then there is a reading from one of the New Testament epistles, and then there is a hymn that is sung, and then there is a processional that takes place where a gospel book is brought in during the, the service. So at some point, the gospel comes in after the reading of the Old Testament and after re the reading of the New Testament, and then it is brought in in a processional, like I talked to you last week about how the Eastern emperors, because they're worshiping in these services, it sort of becomes an expectation that there is going to be pomp and there's going to be sort of a, a sense of the bigness and the gravity uh, and the glory of what's going on in this church. And that ends up coming through in these processionals. And so there's a processional, there's a gospel reading that takes place, and then there's a chant. There's a chant of holy, 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 or... Kyrie eleison, and then there's a sermon. Um, and then there is responsive liturgical prayers, and then they dismiss everyone but baptized believers. So uh, even in the Western church, my understanding is, and I don't know when this changed, but uh, 10, no, probably 20 years ago, I went to a Roman Catholic service, and they certainly let me stay while they do the mass. Uh, I just didn't go up, just in case you wondered. Uh, did not go up to receive receive the mass but we were so i don't know when the change takes place that's something that someone else could probably tell you 
Um, there is an offertory that takes place after unbelievers are sent out. They prepare the bread and wine. The wine is mixed with water. They did this, by the way, because the wine would be really bitter and very rich and sometimes thick. Um, the wine wasn't always good. And so you would mix it with water so that it would just chill out a little bit. You know, it was very, it would sometimes be very strong. Um, the reading of the names of people being prayed for. So they would read the names. They'd say, hey, we're going to pray for so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And then they would pray for them. Uh, there would be a kiss of peace, a prayer of peace, a responsive dialogue between the people and the priest, the prayer of consecration of the bread and wine, the singing of the Sanctus, that's uh, Isaiah 6.3, and then the breaking of bread into nine pieces in the shape of a cross. Uh, the piece of bread would be a piece of bread would be mixed with the wine, and then they would have the Lord's Supper. The act of communion. Then they would have communion while singing a psalm. Um, so similar to us in the sense that you know we sing a song while we're receiving the Lord's Supper. They would have a prayer of thanksgiving, and then a deacon would dismiss the people. So if you wonder what deacons did in the Middle Ages, they dismissed the people. Um, there's probably more than that, but. By the way, you do see a, a diminishing of the office of deacon during this time period. Um, and so um, we could probably talk more about deacons later. But um, instead of talking about preaching in the Middle Ages, I just want to draw your attention to a few of the songs. So we're not going to have enough time to actually um, go any further into mid, uh, preaching in the Middle Ages. But let's talk about some songs from this time period. If you get out your hymnal, because we have some overlap with music from this time period, believe it or not. Um, one of the earliest hymn writers for this time period is the Venerable Bede. Does anyone remember Venerable Bede? Where have you heard that name before? A couple weeks ago, I told you where the name Easter came from. And I read to you the quote from the Venerable Bede. And he explained that... Uh, the Astre was a pagan observation. I'm not going to go into that again. Um, but that's where we heard Venerable Bede's name. That's where we heard him brought up. So he wrote a song on page 289 in the Trinity Hymnal. And the song is called A Hymn of Glory, Let Us Sing. And I just want to uh, quote to you from the first lines of the song. These are, there's a reason why these songs are still in our hymnal um, they deserve to be sung more. I've already said that before, so you know that's on me. But I already put enough songs you don't know into the service, so I'm going <laughs> to pump, pump the brakes on that. Um, but listen to this. A hymn of glory let us sing. New songs throughout the world shall ring. Alleluia, alleluia. Christ by a road before untrod ascendeth to the throne of God. Um, just a beautiful song exalting Jesus in his ascended state, in his ministry, his heavenly ministry. Um, look at the last verse here. Again shall ye behold him so as ye today have seen him go. Alleluia, alleluia. And glorious pomp ascending high up to the portals of the sky. There are not a lot of songs related to the ascension. Think of how many songs you know that relate to the ascension of Jesus. There are not a lot. And in fact, if you even look in uh, the Trinity hymnal, you've got one, two, three, four, five, five songs in the Trinity hymnal relating to the ascension of Jesus. 
So you could, you could just see, imagine sort of the, the blank spots we have in our own hymnody, the sort of things that aren't talked about in the songs that we sing. Um, here's another one. Turn to number six, uh, sorry, 266, just a, you know, 30 pages earlier. You may actually know this song. This may ring a bell. This is by John of Damascus. John the Baptist uh, lives in the 700s. He, as far as we know, is the first Christian to really interact with Islam. Um, he is the one who is on, he's in Syria. He is speaking with Muslims, and he sees the Muslims as a Christian cult. Um, he is the one who sees them as, well, these people don't have an orthodox view of Jesus. He doesn't see them as a world religion. He sees them as an outworking of an unhealthy Arianism. And so he is, he's responding and pressing back on them. Well, look, both of the songs on this page, no, sorry, 266 and 267. If you look on the next page, both of these songs are from John of Damascus from the 700s. And I have a feeling you do recognize number 267. The day of resurrection, earth tell it out abroad. The Passover of gladness, the Passover of God. From death to life eternal, from this world to the sky, our Christ hath brought us over with hymns of victory. Um, pretty familiar. I think we may have even sung it uh, last Easter, and we may even be on the schedule to sing it this Easter. Um, a very old song. I think a song from the seven, 700s is pretty old. Um, Number 247, this one's going to be very familiar. This is a song that we regularly sing during the, off, during the Lord's Supper. Um, oh, sacred head now wounded. You're going to hear some more from me about Bernard of Clairvaux next time. I believe I'll be talking about Bernard next time. Bernard of Clairvaux writes, Oh, sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss, till now was thine. He's got a very high view of the the pre-incarnate state of Jesus. He's talking about the love that the Father and the Son had together in eternity before he was incarnate and came into this world of misery and sorrow. What glory, what bliss was till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. I find sometimes that we sing the song and become so familiar we forget we forget the meat of the lyrics. There's such there's such riches there. Um, what language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Uh, an incredible song from a guy that didn't know Greek or Hebrew. Um, Number 646 is Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. Another song by Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, I won't read that one, but you certainly could check it out. Take a look at it. It's a lovely song. Again, there is a reason why these songs survive. If you look at number 539, Bernard of Cluny in the 1100s, 539. This is a song. What is going on during the 1100s? What is the big event taking place in uh, Christendom in the 1100s? The Crusades. Right? The Crusades. Jerusalem is on everybody's mind. And what does Bernard of Cluny do? He writes this song 
speaking of the church, he's re- reflecting on uh, the church triumphant. He's reflecting on the church triumphant. And he, this is a reflection of the time when Jerusalem is a deep focus on people's minds. Listen to the, the lyrics here. Um, and see this more, as more than just about this, the literal city of Jerusalem. Think of this as a message about the church. Jerusalem the golden with milk and honey blessed. Beneath your contemplation sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not what joys await us there. What radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. Um, and then look at the last verse. You know, again, he's got his eyes on the heavenly Jerusalem. Not, we're not talking about the earthly Jerusalem by the last verse, are we? Oh, sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect. Oh, sweet and blessed country that eager hearts expect. Jesus in mercy, bring us to that dear land of rest who are with God the Father and spirit ever blessed. Again, quite an old song and it has a very rich view of the church, a very high view of the church. Um, And then finally, another song I am certain that we know because we do sing it a lot. I'm, I'm glad to finally be able to point to some songs we are singing and not just picking on my song choices all the time. Um, St. <laughs> Francis of Assisi, writing in the 1100s, 1200s, he, he sort of straddles that time period. He's, he's from 1182 to 1226. He didn't live a long life, um, but he did at least uh, start the Franciscan order of, of monks. And it's all creatures of our God and King. Um, one of the things with St. Francis is he loves nature and he sees in nature the glory of God. Um, he has a, another song called The Canticle of the Sun. Has anyone heard of The Canticle of the Sun? He talks of brother sun, sister moon, which sounds like a very mystical, weird way of speaking. Um, but all he's saying is these are fellow creatures that also sing out the glory of God. So he's very big on nature. Um, I think St. Francis, father of the hippies, you know. This is a guy who loved nature and he loved going barefoot. Uh, I'm just saying, if they had surfboards back then, he would have had one. Um, now he would have given it away. St. Francis would have given it away. This is the 1182 to 1226. So this is still quite old. Um, but he's singing, Look, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. He's calling upon all of creation to do what Psalm 19 says, right? Psalm 19 says that all creation proclaims the glory of God. The heavens declare his handiwork. And that's all that, that he's really doing here. He's, he's reflecting upon the wind that brings God glory. He's reflecting upon flowing water that gives God glory. He's talking about human beings giving God glory. Everyone is meant to give God glory. And so he's calling upon creation as witness. Um, another great song that has really stood the test of time Uh, in a lot of ways we are very dependent on modern interpreters of these songs to take them from usually what would be latin and then bringing them into english and then we and then also setting them to a singable tune the the unsingable tunes tend to fall by the wayside and then what what is more simple quarter notes tend to be less minor key those tend to be the songs that it's easier for people to sing and those end up being the ones that persist in the church. That's why most of the songs in the, in the hymnal are songs that I, I, would, I would consider more singable. Um, 
There's a lot more we could say, but we're going to have to come back to this next week. So uh, I've already kept us a few extra minutes. Let me pray for us, and then next week we'll talk about preaching in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who've gone before us. Um, Lord, we know that there are many things in the services that we might not recognize. There are many things uh, that we would not feel at home with. But at the same time, oh God, uh, we are still reading about your church, about your work in people's hearts during a time period that would feel very foreign to us. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would not be looking for ways that we differ from these brothers and sisters, but rather that we would be looking at how it is that your gospel was faithfully carried forward. And so I pray that even now, Lord, we, even today, that when we find opportunities, that we would read sermons and stories from these brothers and sisters from this time period, and that we would be encouraged. And I pray that you would also help us to have a critical eye so that we always can ask the question like Bereans, is this found in the word of God? Uh, would you be with us this week, God? I pray that your word would rest heavy upon us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.